Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. This episode is a continuation of the previous conversation I had with Ed Walter, the global CEO of ULI. Ed shares his perspective on the present and future of the hospitality, industrial, retail, and multifamily sectors. Enjoy the conversation. We've talked obviously a little bit about office, um, but I, I know you have interesting views on so many subsectors of the real estate industry because you see so much of it. Um, I'm curious just to get your almost short form summary of where do you think the following sectors end up, say, two years from now, insofar as like how are they different? Uh, how are they different from, say, where we started 2020? So let's start with one you know very well, hospitality. So hospitality in 2023 is different than hospitality at the beginning of 2020. How would you describe that? I think the wild card for hospitality to me is going to be business travel. And it kind of comes to this whole, what we've all learned from the standpoint of communicating this way. I think there still is, I just heard Bill Gates yesterday suggest that he thought it would be cut in half. I think that's an overstatement, but it stands to reason that there will be, you know, that folks having gotten comfortable using Zoom will conclude that there are times when that's more efficient. But leisure business, I don't see that going anywhere. That's been growing. I think that will continue to grow just as much as it did in the past. And I, I may be sort of selling my own book here a little bit, but I don't think the convention business is going away either. In fact, I think in a world where if people are working from home more, the need, the, the, want, the opportunity to connect in person at major events is going to be even stronger than it is today because you don't do it as frequently. So I think lodging has the ability to come back relatively quickly, but the question will be what happens with corporate demand? And the important thing to note about corporate demand is, you know, that's who pays the biggest rate. So when you're looking, I think that's the reason when you hear projections to say that hotel industry won't get back to 19 levels of profit until 24 or 25, it's in large part of a concern of what happens on the corporate segment. Because the pricing elasticity is, is uh, just much lower there. Like if you need if, to, if you need to right. travel, you need that that baseline of business travelers to fill the hotels or fill a certain. You've got an opportunity to secure a twenty five million dollar commitment to a fund. It doesn't matter whether the hotel room is three fifty or five fifty. You're making the trip. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> that made it very personal, and is totally right. Um, so. Let's talk about retail. So what happens in the retail sector in the next few years? Yeah, as I suggested before, I think this is the toughest sector. And we are all, you know, every one of the retail CEOs would tell you that we were over-retailed. Your, you know, e-commerce is creating less of a need for bricks and mortar. Although, you know, at times when you see the statistics, it's still amazing how much more product is sold in bricks and mortar than not, but there's still, you know, you're still seeing even, but with what's happened, even guys like me have gotten more comfortable buying online than ever did in the past. So I think you're going to see all that. 
I, I suspect that this is really because of the, the starting off in an oversupply situation, there's going to be a big difference between winners and losers in retail over the next decade. And that it's, it's the same thing you've seen in the mall space where the A malls tend to hold up better, but as you get into B at the tenant base, it's been tougher and C and D need to, or C needs to figure out how to become something else. I think you'll see a clear continuation of that trend. I think a lot of folks are predicting that department stores are going to play much smaller role in retail going forward. And maybe the most challenging, what came out of our emerging trends publication, specifically around retail, was a belief that the economic model between the landlord and the tenant might evolve in a way that was shorter term leases and potentially, this can, I think this can get complicated, but potentially more percentage rent focus. And so you're going to change the risk equation of those assets a bit with both of those with both of those changes because if your lease doesn't run as long and your rent is more susceptible or it's more tied to the level of business that you you have that's going to change the dynamic around valuation and and also creates in some ways stronger alignment between yes. landlord and tenant uh, which is actually something you know we've talked a lot about and advocated for which is if you think about percentage rent, it's almost a form of like miniaturized atomized equity at a store level in a brand because you, you are aligned with the performance of that particular store, namely its cash register and how productive right. it is. Um, but one of the things we're also seeing is that some of the big retail landlords are starting to recognize that there's more flexible terms, there's shorter duration leases, there's more build outs, the, all these things that create maybe better alignment between landlord and tenant as the first step. The second step being percent rent as further aligning the interests of landlord and tenant. But there might be this logical extension of that where landlords actually start to take equity positions in their tenants. And at some level, Simon's doing that, right? Simon's doing that, right? That, that, that's happening. Now, it's happening at big scale. In some ways, it's happening almost defensively today, right, to protect a lot of the leases where there's exposure to, you know, high-risk retailers that could reject a bunch of leases in bankruptcy. But do you think that takes more of an offensive tack in the future where, I guess what I mean is, are landlords going to start investing in brands more earlier do you think in the future? I'm not sure that probably depends a little bit on what their source of capital is because right. the market typically gets uncomfortable when a company that does this suddenly tries to do this. So, you know, and, and the valuation issues and the expertise and management issues will enter into that. But I think what this will do, this is going to reward the companies that really understand their business and really understand placemaking. Because if you think about everything you just described, the way you, the way you offensively win at this is when you create the space that people have to go to and want to go to and want to basically that they want that shopping experience, but it's not just walking into the store and buying the shoes. It's, enjoying the entire surround and it's it's the full afternoon it's eating it may be the kids have a place to play in other words the more that it becomes part of entertainment as opposed to just a place to buy something at least when you're talking about the, the major malls 
they can win at that game because they'll drive the percentage rent higher. And by the way, if a tenant's, they may not mind that shorter term lease because term goes both ways, right? We first talked about it in the context of, oh, if you only have a five-year lease, that you, know, you might lose that tenant after five. Yeah, another way to think about that is I can kick that guy out if he's not performing because my mall's doing so well. I'd be better off with Tiffany's versus Zales in that, uh, in that jewelry slot within that mall. Yeah, and Ed, in, in, that, in that kind of model, almost the, the opportunity to recurate a, a retail environment and make it more experiential and make it more complete and kind of uh, align the interests of what the shopper wants between food and beverage and different brands and different lifestyle experiences. Do you think that inherently favors what I would think of as like command and control environments, meaning malls, right? Which are inherently command and control environments where if you own the mall, you can totally curate which tenants are inside right. versus street level retail where you have a kind of collective action problem between all the local landlords that, you know, have their one asset to win rent on and therefore aren't willing to engage in that give and take of curation to kind of re-inject vibrancy into that particular street retail asset. I think you're probably right. I mean, I wouldn't want to underestimate the ability of high street retail to come back. And I, and I, I know people are negative on that right now, but I also know that that shopping experience is probably for a lot of folks preferable but you're exactly right. When it comes to affecting that place that you're going to, the mall has a much greater opportunity to try to do that than a collection of stores, you know, on, on several blocks within a city where there's not common ownership. Right. You're really relying on sort of this joint effort to upgrade an area. Now, our business has done that over the years, but you can do it a lot faster at the mall level than you can at the street level. Let's take the other side of the coin from retail. So industrial, um, what's happening in industrial in three years? Well, the first thing is anybody that owns stock in industrial over the last two years has a constant smile on their face because right. no doubt that sector's done extremely well. Right. Um, you know, and, and what, I, what I'm seeing there is that despite all of the sort of enthusiasm for the sector, there still isn't a supply problem there. I mean, there may be in certain markets, but overall, all these different trends we're seeing for more e-commerce and, and things like that have just been driving more and more demand for that space. And so it's in great shape. And in the outlook from everything I read continues to be really positive. I think to some degree, COVID not only, you know, sort of moved maybe product out of retail stores or out of bricks and mortar retail into industrial, but there's also been a bit of a shift around supply chain management and a belief that instead of it just everything coming just in time, that sometimes it's more important to make certain you have it before, as you, you know, this isn't just sort of in the real estate sector or just in the retail sector, but any company is now creating, creating a little bit more of a, placing more priority on the ability to make certain they have adequate inventory to run their business because of the supply chain disruptions we've seen. So I think that sector's in really good shape right now. And it's interesting when you think about just US commercial activity, like getting goods to consumers. And 
you know, the, the, the various ways you can get goods to consumers, either through a brick and mortar retail store or through e-commerce, right, which relies more heavily on the industrial real estate supply chain. I was recently interviewing uh, Tyler Henritzi at Blackstone, and he had a really interesting stat, which is to take a given good and get that into a consumer's hands through the traditional brick-and-mortar retail real estate ecosystem and its associated supply chain versus through an e-commerce network to their door takes about three times the square footage, right? So I was using the example of a toothbrush. Interesting. So how, if you take that toothbrush and divide by all the touch point of all the real estate that's required to get that into a consumer's hands through a traditional brick and mortar retail channel, it's three times as much through industrial. And so what I wonder if is, is partially what's happening in, in industrial that because we're seeing this secular shift, this migration away from brick and mortar retail towards e-commerce, that that is in turn just shifting square footage, it's cannibalizing square footage at the, in the traditional retail sector and just reallocating that demand to the industrial sector. Is that somewhat what's happening? I, I think that has to be. Now, I will say, I also know that some retail stores are actually shrinking the part of the store that's, that's sort of open to the customer and, and doing a lot of fulfillment out of the store itself. So they're acting as their own warehouse. But right. sure, you're right about that. You know, and, and certainly if you think about some of the bulkier products that we all start to just have regularly delivered by Amazon, I mean, it's, you know, if you think about the, the space that you need for paper towels and toilet paper and stuff like that, you know, it makes perfect sense that that would be showing up and, and requiring more space in the warehouse environment. And, and inventory, right? And you push that right. to its logical extreme and every time you drive by an auto dealership, you're like, wow, that requires a lot of space because there's a lot of cars sitting idle so that you know, any consumer can have their choice and they can pick any permutation of color and interior. They have to have that supply on site or at least within the region. And that's really space intensive. But what's interesting is that if you move that towards more of a e-commerce model, I mean, the space demands could be just titanic right? In terms of how much space is required. Sure. I mean, that's a great example because if you get more, if you can get more comfortable about the ability to order the car you want, and then you just pick it up when it's delivered. I mean, from the auto dealer's perspective, the, the amount of space that they need for that is radically lower. And an extreme example of that is what Tesla's obviously done, where they have Tesla dealerships in malls and, you know, a few thousand square feet. You can walk in, jump on a computer and buy your Tesla. So there's there's just an interesting um, collision and blending of, of retail and industrial from a supply chain perspective that I think is, is just fascinating to unpack. Um, but I want to get to the last major sector, um, multifamily. So multifamily three years from now versus beginning of 2021 to 2020. The, the one thing that I think the, the multifamily industry has to continue to be concerned about is legislative efforts around rent control. It, it, in some ways, it's, it's so striking that the same communities that limit the ability to build, which that means limit supply, that means raise prices when demand is strong, are the same ones that are calling, that other parts of the community are calling for rent control. And that, to me, is the one threat that I see to the multifamily business is if that, if, you know, if rent control starts to become 
a bigger thing across the country, it, it's obviously a negative for the industry. And that's a really interesting segue. I wanted to ask you about policy and some of the, the federal policy changes that, that we might see in the coming four years. Obviously, we're recording this on November 19th. It looks like we have a new federal administration um, whose policy agenda is going to be likely very different than the previous ones. How do you think, or what do you think the effects of that policy agenda will be around the real estate industry? And I'm curious around maybe two big uh, areas. One is housing, right? Which is obviously something that we've grappled with as a nation and particular localities have for a while. And the second is sustainability and decarbonization for the real estate industry. What do you think we'll see at a policy level over the next four years? You know, the, the thing that's got the biggest effect on the real estate industry is what are the steps that the new administration takes to encourage economic growth, right? Because if you don't have economic growth, then, then real estate and other industries will suffer. I think the second biggest thing that always affects our industry, and we'll get to part of what you were describing there, is what, how do they play with tax policy? Because so often the real estate business has been at least driven, not completely, but significantly around the edges, around what are the tax benefits or detriments of investing in real estate. I don't think we can attack the housing affordability problem without providing some incentives at the federal level to be able to encourage the production of the housing that is required. Um, you just, if you, you know, without the program, the aggressive programs that have been in place in the past and allowing those to continue, it's really difficult to get the numbers to work around new housing, or even in some cases around renovating existing housing. And so if we really want to, at least in the higher priced areas across the country, which is where a lot of the jobs are, if we want to encourage more housing, we're going to need some federal need some federal programs that are designed to address that. To increase supply. Right, to increase supply. On the, on the sustainability and the climate change side, I mean, frankly, that's one of the things I'm most encouraged about with the new administration is the fact that they've made it pretty clear that they want to get back, be, again, rejoin the Paris Accord and at least be recognizing in a more direct way the impact that uh, carbon emissions are having on the overall environment. And even if you want to debate whether or not that's really the cause, the reality is, is we know we have the problem. The seas are going up, the storms are getting worse, the fires are getting worse. So I don't really necessarily get into debating the cause, but I know what the effect is, and I know that we have to start to address that. So taking a more concerted, organized view as a country to how we want to address that. And in some cases, making some hard decisions. Not every home that's been flooded three times should be rebuilt. Not every community is going to be able to afford to put up a seawall to protect what's there. So it's going to require you know, legislators, politicians, and leaders to make some tough decisions. But you know, we're going to, we are, as an industry, incredibly affected by that. Uh, we are affected by whether our building survives the event. We're affected by the cost of putting in the improvements to allow that to happen and what that does to our cash flows. So we have, we're so vested in, this, in coming up with the solutions. But to me, the important thing is 
to be proactive about identifying those solutions and not waiting until after there's a disaster to take the steps that could have prevented it. You know, why, why suffer the loss, then rebuild, then fix the problem? It's not hard to see what the problem is going to be, so let's be proactive in trying to address it. I totally agree. And real estate inherently is the industry that is most susceptible to climate events because you can't move a building, right? <laughs> exactly. You can't pick it up and move it. It is definitely an RV, unless it's a mobile home park, maybe, but that's about it. <laughs> exactly. And and the, the, the consequences are are real and, and, and they're profound. And I guess I'm curious from from your vantage point, like what would you encourage real estate owners to do? Right? There there is this new likely federal policy imperative to decarbonize real estate, to reduce the real estate industry's current 30% share, right, of global greenhouse gas emissions, and the spotlight is likely going to be thrust on the real estate industry. What would you encourage a CEO to do in response to that today? Well, I've long been a believer, and we did this regularly at Host, is we would continually look for opportunities to take advantage of what technology was giving us to figure out how to reduce carbon usage or electric utility usage within our buildings. It's a simple thing to do. And I'm sure, I, mean, I would suspect that most real estate companies are trying to do it, but it's a simple step and it's good for your wallet, right? Investing in energy management systems or additional insulation or whatever makes a difference in how much energy you consume. I think the other thing, and we've been starting to have some conversations in the Washington area about this. I think the other big thing that we can do is start to work with our energy providers and see if we can make commitments to them that make it easier for them to use renewable sources of energy. Because if we're going to try to get to net zero, the reality is, is we can't get, you still have to have power in a building. You still have to have heat and air conditioning, you know, depending upon where you live. So we can't, we can't get away from needing power. So we can make our buildings as efficient as possible and use as little power as we can. But ultimately, to get to some of those goals, we've got to figure out how we can get more clean power so that we're not exacerbating the problem in trying to get to the power that we need or at, to buy the power that we need. So our industry, because we are such large users of electricity, I think we can be effective in leading the way and leading that transition to more clean power. And just greater levels of collaboration between you know, the private real estate sector and a lot of these public utilities that I agree. There's right. I mean, independence if, there that, that's obvious. Right. And if we make a long-term commitment to the utility provider to buy the power, then it makes that much easier for them to make the, their own commitment to actually, you know, build the facility that's, you know, whether put up the windmills or the solar panels or whatever, hydro, to be able to, to actually generate the power that we all need. So, I, you know, I think we can, we, can only, we can go as far as we can to reduce our need, but ultimately we've got to change the source of power in order to get to the goals that we'd like to have. Absolutely. Well, I hope that uh, turns out to be the case. And Ed, it's always so interesting talking to you because I think you have just such a wide and, and kind of deep and multifaceted view of what's happening in real estate. So this has been so interesting. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. 
it's been it's been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.